0: So I want to teach through, we're going to be in Nehemiah, uh, continuing chapter 2, where Josh took us last week, we'll continue with that, and then we're going to have an exercise after, and a way to respond. Let me just pray for us before I begin, and as we uh, come before God's word, that it would transform our hearts. Father God, thank you so much for who you are. Lord, thank you that you are deserving of all praise, Father. Lord, that we could praise you all morning, that we could sing to you, that we could sing of your attributes and sing of your faithfulness, Father, and it would not be enough. God, you are a God of faithfulness that keeps his promises. Lord, And you have called us your sons and daughters, Lord, and it is a privilege to be yours. Lord, it is an honor to be yours, Father. And so we just commit ourselves to you as individuals, as families, as a church family, Father. Lord, that we come before your word and we humble before it, Lord. And ask that you would use it in our lives, Father, that we would abide in your word, Lord. And I pray that your spirit would abide in us and interpret your word for us and make application of it for us, Father, that you would show us yourself through your word this morning. Or may you be lifted up, may you be honored, through us and in this place, in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so briefly, 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 we're going to review where we've been with Nehemiah. No dates, no numbers, but just to review the story, because this is a story, and we're continuing the story. So if you remember, 141 years before Nehemiah, the Jews were sent out. Of Jerusalem, They were exiled to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar came in. He destroyed the city and he took all of the people to Babylon. After a generation had been in Babylon, Cyrus, a Persian king, took over and he released and he made a decree that they could all return. So they were all able to return or start returning 92 year- years before we come to Nehemiah. The temple, they had gone back. The first thing they built, rebuilt, was the temple that had been done and completed for 71 years. And then as we read through Ezra, Ezra came back to bring the Lord the God's law, to teach God's law, to instruct them in God's law 13 years prior to Nehemiah. So that's the part leading up to where we started Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is there in Persia. He's born there in Persia. He's a Jew. But he had never been to Jerusalem. And he's working for this king. And he's the cupbearer to the king. And these friends, these other Jews, these brothers come to him. And the thing that Nehemiah asks is like, how is Jerusalem and how are the Jews? How is the people and how is the place? Tell me about the people and the place. And he hears about the people. He hears that they're in great shame. He hears that they're in trouble. He hears that the place is broken down and destroyed. And we remember God moved in him, the Holy Spirit moved in him, and he had this response, this spirit-stirred response. And it brought him to this place where he wept and he mourned for days. And then we looked at, he prayed for months, at least three to four months that he prayed and he fasted. And then we went through, well, what did he pray? How did he spend that time? And he prayed and he, he went before God remembering, remembering who God was, that God is this great and sovereign God. He's an awesome God that keeps his promises. And Nehemiah remembered his own part, that he had played a part in this, not just his people, not just his father's family, but he himself. He had a part in this disobedience. He had a part in not being faithful to God. And so he confessed his part. And then lastly he says he realized his place. He was a slave. He was a servant. God had redeemed them. Had brought them out of Egypt. He had brought out this people. He had saved them. And now he was to serve him. And so with that understanding, because I think going through that and even in the story, sometimes we can miss what's the big idea. What's the main point? And if you look at verse 8 and 9, I've got it up. Up there, This is, if I was to look at a, a thesis or the summary or what Nehemiah is all about, it's these two verses. He says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But here's where Nehemiah picks up, verse 9. But if you, if you return to me, and if you keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from their eye, from their God, he will gather them and bring them to a place that I have chosen. And he says, and I'll make my name dwell there. This is what's saying, but if you return to me, and you keep my commandments, then God will gather them into this place and he says, I'll make my name dwell there. That's what he's doing. That's the story of Nehemiah. That's what's occurring. That's what God moved in Nehemiah's heart. That's what we're going to see over the next few months as we continue to go through Nehemiah. That's what's occurring. Be faithful to me. I'll be faithful to you. And as I'm faithful to you, I'm going to make my name known. People are going to know who I am. And that's the result. That's the outcome of our faith is God's faithfulness. And as He's faithful, He makes His name known. He shows Himself. He proclaims Himself. He demonstrates Himself so that people can see who this God is that we love and serve and who has called us. It's for Him to make His name dwell in a people, and a place. And we talked about that. It's about His reputation. It's about His glory. It's about that that would be built, that that would be rebuilt in this case. That His name would be known by everyone in every place. That was the point then, that's the point now. That's his mission then, that's his mission now. That his name would dwell among us, in our body, that he'd be represented in this place, in our body, living stones, and in this place, landmark, in our neighborhood, that God's name would be made known. It was Nehemiah's mission that he was participating in. It's the mission that we are participating in. And I would tell you that it's the mission that God has been on from Eternity past to eternity future. Everything is about making his name known for his glory, his fame, that he would be made known, that he would show himself, that we would serve him, that we would love him, that we would respond to him. So with his heart broken for the people in a place, Nehemiah wept, he mourned, he pressed, fasted, he prayed, and he remembered how God had been faithful and that moved him to faithfulness. It moved him to action. It moved him to respond. He had been fasting and praying for months. And then what was the first thing he did? Josh taught on this last week. When we started chapter 2, the first movement, the first response that he had was he went to the king. He went before the king. And he's like, I want to show you my burden. I'm going to share with you my burden. I'm going to tell you of what's burning my heart, of what God has put on my heart. And he shared that with the king at risk for his own life. He went before the king sad. And the king saw that. And he requested the favor of the king. He's like, if I'm going to do what God has put in my heart, if He is moving me in this place, I look at my situation, you're going to have to let me go. You're going to have to let me return to Jerusalem. You're going to have to allow me to go back to the place of my father's graves. You're going to have to allow me to go back to rebuild. And he asked this sovereign, or he asked this pagan king, and the sovereign God works in this pagan king to allow him to do that. You can look at the summary of it the end of verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8, it says, And the king, after everything that happened, it says, And the king granted me what I asked for, and the good hand of my God was upon me. The king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah was faithful, he responded in action, and God was faithful in return, and sovereignly worked through the heart of this king to allow him to go back. But that was his first step of faithfulness. And you guys know a lot of times the first step of something is you get fired up, you get excited. If anybody started a diet, particularly fad diets, I once did a lemonade diet. We were talking about this this week. I was so excited, fired up the first day. Woo, this feels good. I feel great. The day two, it wasn't that great. Day three, I was dying. It's easy to start. I can be fired up and passionate. It's hard to continue. It's hard to continue in something. And even worse, it's hard. It's, it's more difficult to finish. You guys know that. That's how life is. We can start, but it's hard to continue. It's hard to be faithful and even more so hard to finish. But Nehemiah had begun and he was continuing in faith. He had requested before the king. He had this excitement about this mission that he was going to go on, that he was going to rebuild the city, that he was going to rebuild the walls and the gates. But what exactly was that going to require? What exactly was, did that mean? What, how is that tangibly going to look for him to go back and for him to rebuild this city? And so as we start today, the passage that we're going to go through, that we're going to try to understand, is Nehemiah is inspecting. He's trying to understand, how is it broken? How is it destroyed? What needs to be done? How am I to respond in faith? And so as we do that, we're going to read uh, chapter 2, verse 9 through 16. And I will tell you that verse 9 and 10, we're going to read, but I'm not going to teach on I'm going to come back to that, okay? As you look at the end of chapter 2, this, these events that are about to happen with Nehemiah, verse 9 and 10 and then verse 19 and 20 are related. And they're both where these outsiders come in and they criticize what's happening. They, 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 they ridicule him and they try and stop the work as he begins or as he continues. And so we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks, looking at this as a whole and how they criticize him and how that, uh, what that experience looked like. So it's there. We're going to read it. We'll come back and study it uh, as we move forward. But right now, we're going to focus on verse 11 through 16. And then we'll read together verse chapter 2, verse 9 through 16 now. Does that make sense? You guys are with me? All right. I'm not ignoring those verses. We'll come back to them. It says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Verse 11 So I went to Jerusalem and I was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went out to the fountain gate and to the king's pool but there was no room for the animal that that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So, you guys can read through this. You can look at the heading. It's probably in your Bibles. And you can see this is what's happening. Nehemiah is inspecting. That's what he's doing through this passage. And as we consider this. And so, what does it mean to inspect? Like, it literally means to look into. That's what the word means. And I want to give you a definition. It says to look at someone or something closely in detail. Typically it's to assess its condition or discover any shortcomings. So you look in detail at something very specifically. You give it a long, hard look. You look at everything and every piece of it. And you're looking at it to see, is it operating according to its purpose? If it's not operating according to its purpose, it's not how it's supposed to be, then what's wrong with it? What's keeping it from... From operating as it was designed. As you guys go into restaurants, on the side there's a eight and a half by eleven sheet of paper, and it's got a letter on it. It's a grade. It's a grade that it gets from the uh, Department of Health as they go in to inspect. They go in to look into this restaurant. They don't inspect from the outside. They have to come on site and they actually have to go into the restaurant and they have to go back into the kitchen, back into the refrigerator. They inspect the food. They look at everything. They look at how the food's prepared. They look at how the food is stored. They look at how the food is served and how long it sits before it's served because their purpose is to make sure that what you eat there is safe. Okay? When you read that letter, and hopefully it's an A, when you see that, that's not that the food is going to be an A taste. It's not that the food is A for nourishment. It's not that it's full and nutritious. It's that it's prepared safely. And so you can go in there knowing that they have done their job, they have inspected this place, and this food is being made for you and prepared for you in the way it was designed, for you to have a safe meal. That's the goal. It's for it to be safe, for you not to leave, for you not to get sick, but for you to enjoy your food. And that's the same way. God has designed us with a purpose. He's designed us to show himself, he's designed us to display him, he's designed us to proclaim him, that his name would be made known through us, and what Nehemiah is doing is he's going back and he's saying, so what actually is wrong, what's not working, what has been broken, what is in shame about the people, how are the walls broken down, I need to understand these people in this place so I can understand how is it that they're not proclaiming and demonstrating God's name. They needed, in a sense, rebuilding in order for their purpose as a people and a place. And I want to show you this, just because I want to use the whiteboard probably, Um, between Israel, because I think sometimes it's difficult for, for us to connect with what was happening these thousands of years ago. Between Israel and between us, we both have, We both have a need. What's our need? Or let's say, what's their need? Their need was to be rebuilt. Our need is for the gospel. And then the the idea, what Nehemiah was trying to figure out is the how. We need the gospel. They need to be rebuilt. I can argue these are the same thing. Okay, That they would both... We would receive the gospel, proclaim the gospel, demonstrate the gospel. That they would proclaim and demonstrate God's name. Okay, And we have to figure out well, how is that not working? How is that not happening? So that we can reach this goal. And their goal, their mission is ours and was theirs is for, is for God's name to be seen. For God's name to be made known. For His reputation his the way he works, the way he loves, the way he acts. Does that make sense? So we both have a need. We need at this point we can say we need the gospel. They need to be rebuilt so they could they could show God's image. And he is trying to determine how. How is this going to happen? I'm going to go in and inspect how or am I going to rebuild them so that they can demonstrate and show God's name. Everybody with me? And so for us Here we are. We need the gospel. This neighborhood needs the gospel. How? How are we to bring the gospel to bear in this place? How are we to proclaim it? How are we to demonstrate it? So that God's name would be made known. Nehemiah had started with a heart for the people. He knew, I've got to rebuild the walls. I've got to rebuild the gates. But he says, how in the world am I going to do this? What is it going to require? And so he inspects understanding the brokenness of a people and a place requires authentic firsthand, and detailed inspection for him to understand the brokenness for him to understand how it needs to be rebuilt he had to go in and he had to inspect he had to look into the people in the place and he had to do that authentically he had to do that firsthand, and he had to do that in detail alright so we're gonna look at his inspection look at how he did that in those three ways quickly His inspection was authentic. As you look at verse 12, at the very beginning he says, Then I arose at night. Why did he get up at night? The night was the time of most vulnerability for the city. That was the time when they needed the gates and the walls the most because they could be attacked, they could be raided. During the daytime there there was danger, but at nighttime there was more danger. It was a time of vulnerability for the city and for the people. The same thing, if you're here in the park, you don't want to be out in Lanark Park after 10.30 when the rec center shuts down and the lights go off. You don't want to be out there. My wife, I won't let her out there. All right. It's just smart. It's a time of more vulnerability. In any place, in any anywhere, at night, you're more vulnerable. And so he goes out at night to see what it's really like, to see the city in its most vulnerable state. And he says in the rest of verse 12, we're going on, he says, and I and a few men with me. He just took a few guys. He came with this entire entourage from Persia that the king had sent with him. But he got to Jerusalem. He waited three days. And in the middle of the night, he goes out with just a few guys. He was inconspicuous. He didn't want to be noticed. He wanted to see it for what it was. He wasn't going to point fingers or to embarrass anybody and say, oh, I see what's wrong. This is what you guys need to fix. He just wanted to go see. He wanted to go listen. He wanted to go observe what was going on. And then as you finish verse 12, he says, and I told no one, What my God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. Look at verse 16. It says, And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work.
1: He didn't tell anyone.
0: It was unannounced. Without the officials without those that had been sent with him, without this decree from the king. He had all the support, all this reason, but he went in the night, he went unannounced because he wanted to see the reality. He wanted to see authentically what was going on and what was broken and what was destroyed. And you guys know I work in the hospital. And the five words you never want to hear, particularly on a Monday morning when you get to work, is the joint commission is here. All right? You hear that every three years you're gonna find out that the Joint Commission is here. The Joint Commission is an outside agency that protects you when you come to my hospital. It protects you because they come in and for five days they have five or six inspectors that are walking through the hospital, that are looking under papers, that are in patients' charts, that are following patients around, that are watching everything that happens and everything we do to make sure that we're doing it appropriately so the patients are safe and so that they get good quality health care. They look into everything. They look into detail, they're there firsthand but it's unannounced. We don't know when they're coming. When I first started working in healthcare, it was always announced. You knew, here's your date, whatever it may be, November 1st through 5th, the Joint Commission is gonna show up. We knew those dates 10 years ago. And so, when I was in the hospital, the hospital would look a certain way for two years and 11 months. And then that last month, before we knew they were going to come, everything got cleaned up. Everybody started doing what they were supposed to do. We started dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And when the Joint Commission showed up, we looked good. Everything looked right. And then lately, they've gone to this unannounced survey, unannounced inspection. And so we're supposed to have this constant state of readiness where what they see is what it is. It's not announced. We don't clean up. They get to walk in, and we have one hour to clean up but they want to see it as real as it is and this is what Nehemiah was doing he wanted to see the reality of the situation when he inspected the brokenness and so think about that for us in this place what does it look like for us to go in for us to be inconspicuous for us not to make a big deal about ourselves and for us to be in a sense unannounced just to be part of the community to watch what's going on to see it as it is to see it its authenticity. I want to see the reality of this place so we can understand the brokenness. We can understand the shame of the people, the trouble that they're in. Uh, So the inspection of the people in the place should be done authentically to see the reality of the situation. But then who should do the inspecting? We could hire a group, Nehemiah could have hired a group of inspectors to go in and inspect for him. We could hire a group of urban studies majors to come in and inspect this neighborhood and understand this neighborhood for us. But it's better, it's better for us to do it ourselves. Because this inspection should be authentic, but it should also be done firsthand. Okay, that's what Nehemiah does. Notice as you look through this passage, the eyes, again and again it says, I, I, I. Nehemiah did the inspecting himself. Look at the beginning of verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem. Verse 12. Then I arose in the night. And then verse 13. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gate that had been destroyed by fire. Nehemiah had been told about the brokenness. He knew about the brokenness. He knew that he had to come back. He knew what his mission was. It was to rebuild the wall. But after arriving, the first thing he does is he goes out and he inspects it himself. He says, I want to see this myself. I want first-hand experience. It's not enough for us to research Lanark Park. It's not enough for us to ask people about Lanark Park. It's not enough to drive through this neighborhood. But being in Lanark Park, that's the best way for us to experience. It's the best way for us to understand. To be here. To experience life here. To live life here. To interact here. To be in this place. We can know a lot of information, but until we have it firsthand, it's just information. When we first connected with Cornerstone, it was a crazy, crazy thing. I would never talked to anybody in Cornerstone for all my life. Nita had a much, much more faith than me. You guys know that. You see that. She sent the email out to them. They responded to us. It's a crazy story. But as we did that, we knew about Cornerstone. I had watched podcasts. I had read books. I had been on the website. I had investigated. I had, I had looked into this information. And then we had started connecting with Jose Luis, the Hispanic pastor at Cornerstone. we had started having these conversations with him over the phone. And he's like, you don't want to come here. No, you should go somewhere else. But we kept talking to him and kept having these conversations. And we got to this point where we said, I know all this information. I've researched all these things. I've even had these discussions. But for us to go any further, we're actually going to have to go out and see this thing. We're actually going to have to go out and meet people and be there and experience it in firsthand. And now we did that, and we came out, and we were able to sit down. I remember in Todd's Todd Neiswanger's living room and that time was so sweet and so amazing we just got to hang out and got to see him in his home transparent with nothing else around and watch him with his kids watch him with his family and to get an idea of what was actually going on to actually talk to people in the church to be there behind the scenes but we got a snippet that big we were there for three days we went back home we made the decision we came out And then as we came out, we had day after day, week after week. When we were first living here in Lanark, we would go to Cornerstone. We were building that relationship. We were participating in the Piedra Angular. Back and forth, back and forth. And we got to see it day after day, week after week. We got to experience that in that proximity. And that's what God wants for us here. That's what God wanted for Nehemiah. He's like, I want you to experience this in proximity. I want you to live amongst, in a sense. I want you to see the fullness of the people in the place. Because you can be here. When we first came to Lanark, we were here those three days. And we walked through Lanark. And we were here on a Saturday day, during the middle of the day. I remember the first person we talked to. I remember walking up and down the street. I remember the jumpers that were there and the parties that were going on. And the activity and the life and the different things. But I saw it at that one point on the weekend during the day. It looks very different during the day on the weekdays. It looks very different at night. It looks different all different times. In the morning when people are coming and going, Lanark Park looks very different based on the time of the day, based on the weekday, based on the weekend. And I need to be here over and over because the difference between day and night, weekday and weekend, is the difference between drug deals, arrests, and gang activity versus sports, quinceañeras, and families on the playground. All those things are in Lanark Park. And when you're there and what you see, it all depends. But to live there in proximity, you see the fullness. To be interacting in and being around an area. You see the completeness of it. And so, not just to live amongst, but also to identify with. Because over time, you live here, you interact here, you play here, you come here, you're going to start to share experiences with the people that live here. You're going to start to understand their life to some degree. I will always be an outsider, I'll always be someone that moved in, but there is a perspective of being here and living here. I can experience part of what my neighbors experience. And that understanding comes over time. I can know what it's like to have a family of six and wait every two weeks and then load up six to seven large hampers of dirty clothes and have to carry them down the stairs. And before we carried them down the stairs, I just realized I didn't move the car to the front. So I had to move the van to the front so they don't have to carry these hampers so far. And I load all six to seven hampers for my wife and then she has to load the kids and we have to go to the laundromat to do our laundry. I would have never experienced that, never known what that was like. If I hadn't moved into the neighborhood. If I hadn't been living life here in a sense. And then to go to the laundromat and drop quarter after quarter after quarter after quarter. And then they don't really dry and you have to drop more quarters and more quarters and more quarters. I would not have experienced that. I would not have experienced trying to find a parking spot around the park at night based on the day of the week so it won't get towed the next morning. Or it won't get a ticket. They don't tow here. They just give tickets. But if you've lived here, if you've, ex- you've been here, if you've played sports here, if you've come and gone from here, you've probably gotten a ticket around Lanark Park. And then you get out and you can't remember where you parked your car. All right? I never could have experienced that if we were, weren't living life here, if we weren't doing life here. I would have never walked outside and found a man on my curb, falling over, if I wouldn't be interacting here, living here. There are things that I just could not have experienced. I could have read about them, known about them, but to experience them firsthand is a very different thing. And that's what Nehemiah was coming to do. That's what God wants us to do here, is to experience, is to live amongst, is to identify with, so that we can inspect, so we can look into the brokenness of this place and these people firsthand. So it's authentic, it's firsthand, and then it also needs to be detailed, this inspection. Authentic, firsthand, and detailed. Look at the end of verse 12, and I'll read through 15. It says, There was no animal with me, and just notice the detail, the detail, the detail. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Verse 14, Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. Nehemiah gives detailed description of what he did, where he went, what he inspected. And you have to think that he just went through piece by piece doing that in extreme detail as he spent that time inspecting the walls and inspecting the gates. And so I want to show you guys we're not going to stick to this. This is for Jovan and he's not even here. He's the one that complained to me he can't visualize this. He needs to see this. We'll use this or a better illustration when we get to the next chapter, when they start to rebuild the walls and the gates, so you guys can see what that would look like. But this is just an example of Jerusalem, the temple at the top, the, the wall that Nehemiah built, and all of those squares are the different gates. You can see what I was saying is the valley gate. He came out this valley gate. He goes back around, and as he comes to the fountain gate, and inside, and he looks at the water, he goes back out. He can't go up here. It's so destroyed, he has to get off of his horse because the horse can't make it through the destruction. And he comes back around and enters the valley gate. More to come. Don't get lost in that. It was just for Jovan, but he's not here, so I share it with you guys. But there's a lot of detail that Nehemiah was looking at, that he was inspecting. It was extensive. But we, a lot of times, we come into a place Or we come to a person, a people, and we say, I know what they need. I know what's wrong with them. I know how they need fixing. Think about the last time if you bought a used car. We did this not long ago. And when my dad, who trained me to look at used cars, you go and you don't walk around it one time, drive it down the block and decide. You walk around it, you walk around it again, then you get down on your knees and you're looking at the the, the gaps between the fender and the door to make sure it hasn't been repaired. Is the hood aligned so that it's never been wrecked or repaired? You're, you're looking for overspray of paint under the fender. Because you ask them, has there been a wreck? No, it's never been a wreck. Like, Why is there a spray here? Oh, well, it got in a little accident there. I thought you said wreck. I said, like, oh, well, <laughs> But the point is, as you walk around and you look in detail and then you open the glove compartment and you go through the papers and you say, well, do you have the record of the oil changes? When has any labor been done? Can I see the records? I want to go through every piece of it. I want to look into it. I want to inspect it. And now I'm going to drive it and I'm not just going to drive it down the street. I'm going to stop, start, stop, start. I'm going to get on the highway. I'm going to go fast. I'm going to go slow down. I'm going to make a hard turn. I want to inspect it completely and fully in detail so that I can know if anything's wrong with it. And yet we come into a neighborhood or we come into a place and we're, we drive by and we say, oh, I know what's wrong with those people. I know the issue. I know what needs being fixed. Without going in, without looking into, without walking with and inspecting, considering people's lives, considering the brokenness. And I think that's arrogant of us. And we need to inspect, we need to walk with so that we're not arrogant, so that we can understand the true brokenness of a people and of a place. And I'll tell you one thing that for me, being here now three and a half years, living in the neighborhood, sitting down with families at their kitchen table, looking at their financial situations, looking at what's going on in their lives, looking at their family situations. When I first walked around the neighborhood, I remember walking by Expose, the adult club on Canoga. I'm like, oh, that's a place of great sin. This is a terrible place. This is a detriment to our neighborhood. As I've lived here longer, and I'm not saying that that is not all those things, but as I've lived here longer, the bigger issue in my neighborhood is the payday loan store across the street on Topanga that's by Vons. That's a bigger issue for my neighbors than the Exposed Club is on Canoga. My neighbors, they don't go to the Exposed Club. People from other neighborhoods drive their cars in and come to the Exposed Club. My neighbors, when they fall behind and they can't pay the rent and something happens and they have nowhere to go, they go to the payday loans and they take out a loan for $250, which requires $750 to pay back over the next six months. And that is a bigger issue, a bigger sin issue, a bigger injustice to my neighbors than exposed is. They're both injustice, they're both sin issues, but this is what, after inspecting, after walking with people, that's the regular issue. That's where people's lives intersect. It's annoying to drive by exposed, but that's what's breaking down my neighbors. That's what's leaving them in trouble. And so we have to inspect. We have to walk through. We have to remain. We have to continue to look into and understand our neighbors and our neighborhoods if we're going to rebuild it. Because we can do a lot of rebuilding that makes no difference. When I first came in, I'm like, we need to clean up the alley. My neighbors don't care about the alley. Right? it doesn't impact their lives it doesn't impact the gospel at this point it doesn't matter right now but for me that would be a really cool thing to clean up and I could feel good about it but I don't want to do that, I don't want us to do that I want us to meet where there is a need and determine how, how can we make the gospel, how can we proclaim the gospel, how can we demonstrate the gospel to our neighbors that would move them in a way to receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and we could walk with them, that these situations could be justified, that their lives could be rebuilt that this place could be restored That's what God wants us to inspect. That's what he wants us to look into. And so I just want to show you a few more details. I showed you this before. So we can have some understanding of our neighborhood, of this place. Okay? The first thing is density. I showed you this is a a map that shows urbanization. The darkest purple colors are the most urban. It's 80 to 100% urbanized. So you can see here in Southern California, we're the most highly urbanized area of the country. Los Angeles, as a county, as a metropolitan area, is the most dense urban area in the entire country. More dense than New York, more dense than any other place. New York or other places have more people, but Los Angeles is more dense. Los Angeles has over 7,000 people per square mile in the metro area of Los Angeles. The next closest is 5,000 in New York. This is a dense place where a lot of people reside. 80% of the people in our nation live in urban areas. The other 20% are scattered out there in the white. And where there's density, there's diversity. If there is density of people in a place, particularly in the urban centers, then there's diversity. And so, you guys can't see this very well, but what this is, is this is Los Angeles, the center downtown. These different colors, and it doesn't show up great with our projector, Right here is a lot of blue, right here is yellow and red, here's some green, the red over here. All those dots, this man created this census map, and literally there is a dot for every person across the country based on their ethnicity, based on their background. So on this map, red is Asian, yellow is Hispanic, green is African American, blue is white, Caucasian and then there's one that's other, and it doesn't show up great, I'll give you guys the website. You look at it, you're like, oh my gosh, I spent a lot of time, I shouldn't have been spending, (laughs) looking at that. And you can dig into, what I'll show you guys, is you can dig into a street level and you can see what the country looks like and you can see how the people are congregated in these areas. And where they're congregated, there's diversity. There's all these different types of people. And so here is a zoom, zoom, right in look, okay? This is us right here. This is Lanark Park. This is my bedroom. <laughs> but anyway. So yeah. Topanga on the side. Roscoe across the top. Canoga coming down. And Strathern on the bottom. Okay. That is what I told you guys about this census block. You can see it's census block number 134.05. By the U.S. census. That is a block where they seg- those lines define who lives here. And as you look here... This area on the right is all industrial. No one lives here. No one lives here. Everyone lives here and here. And yet this is one of the most dense census tracts in all of Los Angeles. And yet half of it, the park, and this industrial area has no one living in it. So everyone and what it is is almost it's four thousand three hundred and seventy six people live in these buildings and these buildings. And then there's one on each side of us. All those apartments, those two strips, what fronts Lanark, what fronts Roscoe, and down Owens Mouth, over 4,000 people, 1,000 families live in those buildings. Right here, right outside of our door. It's .1 square mile. A tenth of a square mile. 4,000 people live there. If you blew that out to a a square mile, it'd be 29,000 people. LA is 7,000 on average. Our block, if it was blown out, would be 29,000 people per square mile. It's dense and it's diverse. So Ernesto thinks this slide came through wrong, but I just want to show you guys. All right, I had to take. I took this from that map uh, that showed all the dots. Every dot is a person. Okay, so the more dots, the more, the darker it is, the more people that are gathered there. Now I'm going to help you guys get oriented because I had to take the roads off because you couldn't read it anyway. This is Roscoe right here. In between, dissecting that is Roscoe, okay? This bottom half of that block, and then that's Owen's mouth. So this is between Roscoe and Lanark and this is down Owen's mouth. That's our census block right there. No one lives here, no one lives here. Everyone is packed in right here, four thousand people. Then you can see the valley and you see what happens over on Topanga? It gets nice and peppery, all right? And then we're all stuck here. And then you move to the valley. You can look at the different pockets where there are apartments and where it's so dense. And then as you go over to the east side of the valley, you can see Pacoima and Van Nuys. And where, again, it gets dense in those areas. But as dark as any other spot on the map is our little square. And now who makes up that square? This again, just just hang with me. I love stats. I promise I'll get through it. And again, you can't see it great, but what this says at the top this is percent of foreign born, percent of people living in an area that were not born in the United States. At the top, the darkest green is 50% or more. Then the next green is 25 to 49%. Okay? This, this is Los Angeles on this side. All right? This is downtown. I mean, this is downtown, East LA, towards towards the. What's it called? The ocean? (laughs) Here's the valley, okay? Here's Van Nuys and Pacoima, see how dark that is? How many are foreign born? Now look, this right here, you can see there's this dark green and then the darkest green. That little square again, guess who that is? That's us. That bottom half of that little shape right there is our census tract. It's as dark as it gets. It's over 50%. 50% of our neighbors were not born in this country. 50% of our neighbors are from somewhere else. All right? It's extremely dense. Many people from many different places. But then what happens? And as a result of that, what's connected with that is also poverty. Our neighborhood, as you look at that census block, 26%, 26%, one of every four of our neighbors, one of every four families is is in impoverished condition defined by the U.S. government at the 100% poverty level. So they are at or below 100% poverty level, it just means they cannot make it. It doesn't make sense. And this is a poverty level that's created for the country as a whole, with the exception of Alaska and Hawaii. So California is included with Georgia, is included with Iowa for the same levels. And I can tell you, it costs more to live here than it costs in Georgia. Okay, But the levels are the same. And 26% of our neighbors, if their family size is four, total family income is that or less. One out of every four families in our neighborhood, if there's four of them in the apartment, make less than that. That's the situation. That's a look at the people. That's a look at the place, just a, a drive-by look, OK? Those are details. Those are research. Those are uh, things that we should think about and consider what that means. But we have to do an authentic, a firsthand and a detailed inspection to understand our neighbors and to understand this neighborhood. We can start there. We can understand those pieces. But we have to walk with. We have to walk amongst. We have to identify with and experience it. And so that's what we're going to do today. That's why you guys have on comfortable shoes. And I would tell you again, Sunday morning at 5 till 12 is one specific time. You're going to see things in the neighborhood now that you wouldn't see at other times. It's going to look different. It's going to feel different than it would at other times. But we're going to go out together and we're going to, in a sense, inspect. This is very superficial. This is not deep. This is not what I'm talking about. But I want this to be the first step, that we would walk out and that we would walk through the neighborhood and that we would look and that we would observe. And so I'm asking that you wouldn't talk. I'm asking we wouldn't talk with each other. You can talk with the Lord. You can speak with Him. But just walk through and observe. Just walk through and look. Just walk through and listen. And consider the people and consider the place. And that God might stir up in us a passion for them. That he would stir up in us the desire that his name would be made known here. So as you do walk, think about what would it look like. What would it look like for these people and for this place and for us here as a part of that. What would it look like for God's name to be made known here.